Anyway, rather than subject you to a year-by-year plot through what I've done in my actually 40-odd years, uh, I thought it, I could discuss a couple of perspectives that I've developed about the ecology of our grassland ecosystems. I'll also give you a vignette of what I think of the uh, current science funding environment as it relates to pasture agriculture. A couple of things, though. At first, I didn't really want to work on pastures. Cherries, kiwi fruits, grapes, and things like that look far more, far more attractive. But believe me, I subsequently wrapped myself in pasture research, and I'll never regret it. The stuff we heard yesterday about hard hill country farming was absolutely fascinating. A well-meaning and close friend suggested that this talk should be some kind of valedictory. Maybe you know something I don't, because I don't. Um, um, intend to leave, irrespective of paid employment. I don't think I'll ever let go of the interest that I've developed in grasslands and that I have been lucky enough to work in throughout my career. I just want to say a few words about New Zealand grasslands as an ecosystem. And I have to say my views are founded on the Canterbury Plains and easy rolling hill country, not the stuff we saw yesterday. I must confess that in the first 15 years of my career, uh, as an entomologist, this involved trying to kill things. My colleagues and I variously got described as nozzle heads, and my science was described as squirt and count, and we heard some reference to that yesterday. This was probably fair. Many of us got scooped up during the post-DDT panic, when all kinds of pests, but most notably grass grub and some other exotic species, made a huge recrudescence in the absence of many of their natural enemies, that have been repeatedly blasted by blanket applications of various organic chlorines. DDT had been banned mainly because it persisted in the environment and messed up all kinds of ecological networks, including making birds' eggs thin. Part of the job then was to find non-persistent alternatives to DDT. This turned out to be quite frightening, as it often involved testing sometimes unlabeled contents of aluminium bottles. These were contents were usually acutely toxic organophosphates supplied by pesticide companies who also bought us lunch. <laughs> this, this, was, this work was pretty much all about replicated rates of application and randomized block designs and uh, dealing with accidental worm and bird kills sometimes. In truth, for broadacre agriculture, this pesticide approach was simply not going to work. The lack of persistence, the cost, and indeed the acute toxicity of these new materials were never going to substitute for the days when DDT got flung around with superphosphate at the same time. And we heard yesterday, actually, we're still working on that problem, that, that lack of DDT is still causing us all distress and difficulty figuring out what to do. Although we've learned a lot about the ecology, in the intervening years. So our way forward uh, over such a large landscape was going to have to be biological control and plant resistance. An obvious corollary here was that we needed to understand the biology and seasonality of the target pests. This led to an era of intensive and I think quite brilliant work on pasture pest population dynamics by Rod East and Bill Kane that has remained the cornerstone of our pest management approaches in pasture ever since. Broadly, for biological control, this has meant the development and use of pathogen-based biopesticides and classical biocontrol whereby natural enemies are released into the pasture ecosystems specifically to knock out the pests.
I can't possibly traverse in any detail the years of work in these areas. Suffice to say that 30 years ago, some colleagues and I got thoroughly involved in the classical biocontrol part of the equation. Actually, it was also about that time that we entered and have remained in a tailspin of having to bid for decreasing amounts of money for increasingly trivial work. It all began with views and pays, and I'll come back to this at the end of this talk. <coughs> From a more sunny perspective, the classical biocontrol story of invasive pasture weevils in New Zealand has been extraordinary. The exotic and highly invasive weevils we've worked on are the lucerne weevil, the clover root weevil, and the Argentine stem weevil. I'll take a bit of time to explain what happened and why. I believe that this has implications for how we should see our pastoral ecosystems, which thanks to our highly effective farmers in partnership with industry and research, remain second to none. No doubt, there is no doubt that New Zealand's improved pasture lands are wide open to invasive species. These are exotic species. We've already heard about the indigenous ones yesterday, grass grub, manuka beetle, parina moth. But from considering the overseas stuff, insects of little more than taxonomic interest in their native ranges have reached colossal densities in New Zealand pastures. But there's something else. There are a hundred other species in the same genus as the clover root weevil lurking around in Europe, and 117 species in the same genus as Argentine stem weevil in temperate South America. Should they get in, any one of these is likely to rip across our pastoral landscape. Threat's very severe, and you all know that. The need for vigilance and biosecurity is also obvious. Anyway, it's been long presumed, but rarely enunciated, that the proneness of our pastures to such invasion is because there's little biological resistance to these species, coupled with the prospect of wall-to-wall -wall supplies of the high-quality host forage plants that we grow and breed. Tellingly, this proneness to invasion is in complete contrast to the Argentine stem weevil in the grasslands of Europe. There, the pest has been intercepted a number of times, but it's never established. The reason for this must be the huge biotic resistance provided by a miasma of predators, parasites, competing species, and full ecological niches the weevil simply can't establish. Anyway, we did the obvious thing, has been alluded to already. In response to our trio of invasive weevils, we and others went back to foreign native ranges of the pest species in search for their most obvious natural enemies. Three out of three, on three out of three occasions, these turned out to be the tiny parasitic wasps that belong to the genus Microtonus. These are very tiny wasps, about the size of sandflies, um, and Microtonus means little murderer in Greek, apparently. <laughs> these wasps lay their eggs in the weevil's body cavity, and the ensuing larval stages kill by devouring the innards. Usually the levels of parasitism we found in the native ranges were less than 10%. Amazingly, in New Zealand, the levels on every occasion shot up to 90%. Thus, the bio thus biological control was achieved on three consecutive occasions. <coughs> and indeed, based on international studies, the chance of getting three out of three uh, using one species was one in a thousand. So it does seem, or did seem, that there's something different about our grasslands compared to other places. Uh, the question is, have we been brilliant? What was going on? Well, obviously the answer in hindsight is no. It wasn't about us. It's about the environment, the ecosystem. 
The control agents in the same way as the pests had similar encountered no biotic resistance, so they also literally took off. Thus the pest populations and parasitism rates have been at levels that are probably in New Zealand that, that have probably never occurred in the evolutionary history of these species in their native ranges, and it's happened three times in a row. We entomologists could indeed hold our heads up uh, with pride when uh, dealing with the endophyte people, one of whom, who I trust was joking, uh, described our biocontrol agents as biological curiosities. He's not here, luckily. Um, but in a way, he was right. Uh, two of the parasitoids, the one against the Argentine stem weevil and the other against clover root weevil, reproduce asexually. So they result in clones producing identical daughters. This characteristic is useful in, in one sense because it helps establish these species when we first bring them into New Zealand. This should have been the end of the story, a huge success, but in fact it isn't the end of the story. In the last five years it's become apparent that the Argentine stem weevil biocontrol agent has pretty much stopped working. Recent research has, indicate that this is, has indicated that this is very probably through rapid evolution, resulting from the extremely high selection pressure exerted by the parasitoid in the weevil. Significantly here, the parasitoid has not been able to evolve because of its clonal reproduction, whereas the weevil can evolve because it sexually reproduces. This is sometimes described as une the unequal evolutionary arms race. One can change, the other can't. Indeed, since the wasp's introduction in the early 1990s, the selection pressure has been pretty much as high or similar level as the exerted by the continuous use of synthetic pesticides, so we shouldn't be altogether surprised to see things happening. Thus, perhaps resistance should be not unexpected. Although it's not been found anywhere else in the world, we're the first group to actually document this, and it did make me think again, we're the first people to document this, why is that? Is it something to do with our pastoral ecosystems? At this stage, uh, oh, we're working on this observation, that, that what I just discussed, and um, we are linking it to ecological theories, and they're tentative ecological theories relating to the lack of biodiversity in our pastures, or the lack of ecosystem complexity in our pastures. Uh, these pastures that we have, which comprise uh, a jumble of um, uh, largely exotic weed species, uh, which are pretty much unconnected evolutionary, uh, are based, as you all know, very much on a handful of European uh, plant species, so we have what's effectively an incomplete transplant, a very incomplete transplant of some of the plants that we get in Europe. Now this is a very cockeyed ecosystem. At this stage I get into quite earnest discussions about this biodiversity thing. Um, <coughs> there are many who um, out there um, say there is indeed biodiversity in our pastures, so what am I on about? What I mean is the functional diversity that is the diversity that actually affects the pest species. There's lots of coincident diversity which um, has largely been imported that have nothing, no effect at all on these pest species. Um, I am assured that there are also loads of natural enemies lurking in New Zealand's headlands and forest remnants. However, I'm not sure. And even if they're there, they seem to stay where they are. This is in complete contrast to pastures in the northern hemisphere where grassland areas may be viewed as holes in what is a basically sylvan landscape. In that very different setting, natural enemies 
range across all ecosystems as if they're one. Not so in New Zealand, here things are completely different. In effect, as Simon Upton has put it to me, we have a huge clash of ecosystems across our landscape. Of course, we have a highly evolved, typically species-rich, indigenous ecosystem that's developed over the last 80 million years. However, right up against this, we have our pastures, which in effect are very incomplete transplants, as I said, a few of, New Zealand, a few of Europe's grassland species. In short, then, in no way evolved ecosystems. Thus, two adjacent ecosystems are alien to each other, and research has shown that, in general at least, the insect species rarely, if ever, interact. So even with, though, we've got those indigenous species coming to our grasslands, three that we just talked about, they're actually not interacting in any way with our invasive exotics that come in. And I don't know of any um, indigenous natural enemies that are going anywhere near these invasive weevil species. There's no interaction at all. So talking a bit more about why resistance to a parasitoid occurred, in short, in New Zealand, in our species sparse pastures, there's been nothing to deflect the parasitoid from singly attacking the hosts. This is quite unlike what goes on in the parasitoid's native ecosystem, where its ability to parasitize is compromised by a wide range of interacting species, including its own slew of natural enemies and niche competitors. Add to this the unequal evolutionary arms race thing, and it all starts to make sense. Uh, to, <clears throat> to counter these circumstances in New Zealand pastures and bring about full ecosystem function, there are well-intended efforts to increase the diversity within our pastures and surrounds to create a sort of doppelganger landscape of the pale arctic grassland <coughs> ecosystems. We can introduce existing diversity within and around our pastures and the scenery can certainly be made to be very reminiscent of that in the northern hemisphere. Also, such planting will bring native species closer to our pastures, and of course, aesthetically, it's very pleasing to see native fauna and flora nearby. It also helps, obviously, with things like honey production. However, I don't believe that it will do much in the way of our pasture pest suppression. From a natural enemy point of view, the diversity will remain functionally inept when it comes to the suppression of invasive species. Yes, obviously, we could bring in some additional aggressive arthropod natural enemies, to more closely approximate what's happening in the evolved ecosystems, but then there will be enormous and colossal non-target impacts, including competitive displacement of native species. Ecological disruption will be severe and permanent. So what to do? Firstly, on the upside, the simplicity of pastures do indeed offer potential for exceptionally effective biocontrol, <clears throat> and in many ways it works in our favor. That three out of three figures are an illustration of that. We've demonstrated it, but will it last? Will this suppression keep going? In view of our recent experience with the appearance of resistance, we need to treat successful biocontrol systems as rare resources that we need to understand and hopefully preserve. With this, there's also the opportunity to use new DNA techniques and technologies to understand more about how rapid evolution in pests can occur in our pastures, how it may be recognized early on, and perhaps this evolution averted. Also, and I think very promisingly, it's possible that DNA technologies can be used to develop, to develop microcystic selection to obtain very virulent parasitoids to systematically counter any evolved effects and losses of efficacy.
Here I'd like to emphasize that these ideas I've been discussing may well be heretical and wrong, but I believe that they provide a framework for future consideration, including the role of biodiversity in our pastures. In short, we are not like Northwest Europe, and many of the presumed lessons we've learned uh, from their repasture pest management and agronomy and so on may not actually fit in the New Zealand pasture ecosystem environment. The Weaver Works are a classical, exa classical example of why we need to do the work here. And who knows that the resistance story I've just been talking to you about with Argentine stemming could well occur in clover root weevil. Um, the ecology of the parasitoid and the weevil are very similar to those of Argentine stem weevil. I'd just like to take a little time to talk about our funding environment. I've just mentioned that we need to do more on pasture ecology per se. This is in addition to agronomy. This is about the actual ecological function of the species and interactions that we've got in our grasslands. We need to do more on this stuff, and I would also say chance would be a fine thing. I don't want to end this talk, oration, on a sour note, but I have to say something about the science status quo. I believe that I've been very lucky to have been employed at the time when I and others were able to develop the sorts of perspectives that I've just been talking about. There remains an ineluctable need to do long-term research. Almost always this is where the truly serious breakthroughs occur, and a good example of that obviously was the end of flight discovery. The current fragmented short-term system now absolutely precludes this type of discovery, and strangely, now it's somehow argued that it's our sector's fault that we're not doing this. With regard to our magnificent pastoral landscapes and their huge contribution to the country's economy, there was a time when these were well protected, using science uh, for public good by successive governments. There were government and quasi-government agencies, and some of you will remember them, things like rabbit boards, soil conservators, hydrologists, forest services, various weed control people, um, um, farm advisors, and a whole slew of people who contributed to getting the science across and highlighting the science issues that the science community should be working on with them. I think there's people making heroic effort to maintain the role of those former um, functions, but I don't think, um, based on the level of funding that the country's affording for this type of work, it's anything like as, in, as intensive as it was. Some years ago, Mothership AgResearch and land-based universities de facto acquired the responsibility for taking care of some of those um, incontrovertible requirements around managing landscapes, catchments, and so on. This requirement on agri-research and other agencies occurred at a time of free-falling budgets, the remnants of which now fund little more than tech transfer in addition to that which is already covered by industry levies. Basically, all of this, they're basically in all of this, there has been a view that farmers must somehow cover the costs of those former roles uh, and cover the costs of basic research, which was done by those various agencies and agri-research and the universities at a time when funding was available. What's happened now um, is that there has been a view, as I said, that farmers should cover the costs, and if they don't, uh, then it's presumed that they're not interested. 
So what's happened then is if the farmers are unable to fund science that relates well beyond the function of their farms and has a lot to do with landscape function, if they're unable to fund that, it's been argued by, by the funding agencies, by the Crown, but if they don't want to fund it, why should we fund ag research? So there's been a kind of standoff. So in a way, um, some governments have felt increasingly the farmers aren't showing the commitment, therefore why should ag research get the funding? Because the farmers don't want it. And I think this um, standoff has become very serious and um, is still going on. Now this is all part of what to me was something of an anti-public good rhetoric and it's occurred when um, it's obvious that it's a time when this sort of research is more needed than ever given public concern about the state of the environment. Finally, with this, there's anguish about recruiting pasture researchers. Like my own area, this sort of work requires long and specialist training. Consequently, there must be some kind of understanding that after training and given adequate ongoing effort, then employment must be a reasonable prospect. <coughs> Notwithstanding the frustrating uh, funding environment I've just referred to, it's been a fantastic experience working in New Zealand's pastoral in, uh, ecosystems. I also believe that um, for the younger people in the room, that rather dark summary I just gave won't last forever. One reason is that many people of my age and demeanor are going to stop working for various reasons. I think there's going to be a lot of vacancies come up and I think there will be a revival of interest in pastoral ecology I've talked about because the national interest requires it. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much for that, uh, Steve, John. Um, an, an interesting perspective that our pastoral ecosystem is still a very, very fragile place, and that is something that we need to reflect on very, very significantly. Um, yeah, so it is my pleasure to present um, Stephen with the, the uh, leading medal and, uh, and a uh, signed certificate.